Good morning. Good to see you all this morning on this beautiful day. Laura and I were out last week, kind of dealing with Laura's mom. Thank you for praying for her, by the way. She's back at her home and doing fairly well. But I said, should a man like me run away, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Nehemiah 6.11. Tonight at 6 o'clock, video series, Life of Samson, Finger Foods as usual, prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, see Andrea's number there, financial note, acts and facts are here for August. Uh, continuing with the care package collection, uh, the items posted on the, on the helps board, and again, if you're last to leave, check the building for lights and the doors are locked. All right, anything else this morning? I'll direct you to Proverbs, the 22nd chapter, for your scripture of meditation. Read 17 through 27. Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service. George, can I ask you to open for us? It's good to see you.
Father, again, we come before you today asking that you would bless this time in your house. And indeed, Father, uh, we pray that you would lift the burdens of life from off our shoulders at this point and allow us, Lord, to uh, put on Christ as the new man in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, I pray that we would pay attention to your word that we would be willing to hear it spiritually and that we would be willing to obey what you have declared to us. Be with Pastor as he speaks and touch the hearts of those who are here who do not know you. Lord, uh, we pray that you would cause them to seek your face this day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your red hymnal this morning, your red trinity, and turn to number 164. 164 in the red. <clears throat> American the Beautiful. All right, and do you have a, a reason while I look at the number? I think it's in the brown. Uh, just because we do live in a beautiful country, it's great and God given, and um, with all the political problems we have going on, I'd like to remind ourselves. Amen. 572. Absolutely. Thank you. 572 in the brown. 572. 
also a beautiful hymn. reading this morning is Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll be reading 10 through 19, 758 in the Pew Bible. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, 
son of Deliah, the son of Methetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Nehoadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been <clears throat> done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Erah, and his son Jehoahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and, and then telling him what I said. So Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Ask that the Lord would bless his word. Take your red hymnal again and turn to, excuse me, 134, 134 in the red.
Our scripture text is Nehemiah chapter 6. Verses 10 and following. Last week we studied the enemy's ploy against Nehemiah. The work on the wall had continued until nothing remained except hanging the gates. And at this juncture, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, enemies of the project, sent messengers to Nehemiah requesting a meeting with him in the plain of Ono. That's way west of Jerusalem. Get him out into the wilderness. Well, Nehemiah discerned that they were out to harm him. It really was a ploy to assassinate him. We note that a discernment is the mark of the believer who trains his mind with the Bible so that the wisdom of God protects him from sin and error. I mean, he, he sensed something was fishy here. Lack of discernment, to say the opposite, is a characteristic of unbelievers and children and untrained believers. You have to be students of God's word to know the tricks that the enemy employs. Well, Nehemiah's reply was that he answered this way, that he was involved in a great project, which is worthy, which was worthy of his undivided attention. We drew out the point that our Christian service is of primary importance, so don't be sidelined or distracted by good works, good as they might be. Nehemiah saw that his presence in Jerusalem and his personal involvement in the work was necessary for the completion of the project. He was indispensable. He had a key role. It's kind of like he was saying to them, if I don't do this, no one else will. Now, not pride, that wasn't it. He just knew what his position was. He refused to cave in under increased pressure because, boy, they started to pour it on. His enemy sent to him four times with the same message to convene with them, and each time Nehemiah gave the same answer. Sometimes temptation comes not once, not twice, but multiple times. So don't cave into temptation. Hide the word of God in your heart so it's there in the hour of crisis to guide you. The enemy doesn't give up just because you turn him down one time. He's going to come back again and again and again. Wear you down, wear you down, wear you down. Get you to fall. Well, none of this works. So the new tactic was done by the enemy. They fabricated a story about Nehemiah planning to revolt and declare himself king of Judah, the province there. And then they threatened to leak that story to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, who, of course, had allowed Nehemiah to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild its walls. Well, we'll just leak this story to the king that you're up to no good here in Jerusalem. You want to make yourself a king. He did three things. He denied the account. 
He called Sanballat a liar. And he left the consequences to God through prayer. In other words, he did what he could do. And then he acquiesced to the grace of God. Now today's study brings us to a third ploy. A third ploy of Nehemiah's enemies to discredit him and thus secure his dismissal from his office. The enemy does not give up on one or two tries. So as we come to the fake murder plot, let's ask the Lord for his grace. Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us of the word, to make us wise in the word. What's marvelous about Nehemiah is that he wasn't fooled by all these tricks of the enemy. It wasn't because he was super smart, but it was because he trusted God. And he knew what God wanted him to do. And so all these ploys to get him to stop doing what he was doing, he rightly understood to be a ruse from the enemy. Bless us with that same kind of discernment, Lord, because we live in a day and age when there are many, many Impediments to the work of God. The world doesn't want the gospel. Our enemies don't want us to succeed with the truth. They want us to be defeated. I pray your blessing upon your word as it was in the days of Nehemiah. May it go forth with boldness today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at verse 10... There was a fake murder plot that was proposed by Nehemiah's enemies. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Methetotel, who was shut up at his home. And he said, well, uh, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Can you believe this? Well, enemies of Nehemiah never stop with these little tricks. When Nehemiah is not suckered into one trap, they just set another one in, and it's in rather rapid succession. Boom to boom to boom. Wear him down. They never got Nehemiah to leave Jerusalem and meet with them in the plain of Ono. They never secured counsel with him by trying to blackmail him with the false story of an alleged disloyalty to King Artaxerxes, who had sent him there to build the wall. But did this dissuade them in their efforts? No way. They just kept it coming. It's as though they are shifting gears on a stick shift automobile. When they started out, they moved slowly at first. First gear. Come, let us meet together on the plain of Ono. Verse 2. That failing, they shifted into second gear. A fabricated story alleging Nehemiah's disloyalty to the king. But Nehemiah held his ground and he still refused to go meet with them. Verse 6 and 7. 
Well, with the car picking up momentum, his enemies now shifted into third, into high gear. Nehemiah was confronted by Shemamiah the prophet, who told Nehemiah to hide in the temple of God because men are coming to kill you at night. Boom to boom to boom. Just boy, they're just pulling out all the stops. And there was a sense of urgency in Shemamiah's request. We need to hurry and get to the temple and bar the doors behind us. Men are coming to kill you. They're coming tonight. Now, all of this seemed rather plausible. I mean, after all, Nehemiah had already figured out that the little meeting in the wilderness was intended to harm him. Verse 2, people who are willing to revert to blackmail to get what they want won't stop at murder if their plan backfires as it did here. They're just going to go to plan B. But Nehemiah wasn't buying this. For one thing, who was this Shemamiah anyway? And what was all this let us meet in the house of God? Let us close the temple doors. Men are coming to kill you. Think about that. Let us, let us, men are going to kill you. Okay, then why is Shemamiah willing to hang around Nehemiah? Wouldn't that be a rather dangerous place to be if an assassination attempt was going to be made on Nehemiah? There was no danger for Shemamiah because he was in on it behind closed temple doors in the very house of God. Nehemiah was to escape murder only there was no murder attempt. It was all a ruse. That's the first giveaway. There's a second giveaway. In certain cases where innocent people were in danger of unjust retribution by an enemy, or in the case of accidental death, they could run to any of the cities of refuge that were built in uh, Palestine, the cities of refuge, but as a temporary measure, they could go and cling to the horns of the altar in Jerusalem for safety, the altar being in the courtyard of the temple complex, but not in the temple itself. You say, well, that seems like a strange custom. Well, maybe it was to our way of thinking, but if, if a person thought their life was in danger and that someone was out to assassinate him, they would go into the temple courtyard and the horns of the altar that were there to, for sacrificing animals and so forth, They would cling to those horns on the altar, and no one could touch them, according to the law. Let me give you an example. When Adonijah tried to assert himself over Solomon and declare himself king, Adonijah was another son of David. David quickly installed Solomon on his throne, and all Israel acknowledged him as the new heir. But when Adonijah heard about this, it says, In fear of Solomon, 
he went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon, and he's clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put, me, put his servant to death. Meaning himself, of course. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair of his head will be fall to the ground. But if he's evil, is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 50 and following. So you see what happened here. David wanted Solomon to be his heir. Adonijah was another son of David. So when Solomon was declared as the official heir, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, Solomon's going to kill me. He's going to do a purge of all the other sons, all the other children born to David. So he went and hung on to the horns of the altar, and that was what that was all about. Well, Adonijah was spared Solomon's wrath because he was protected by the blood of the altar. He was given a reprieve, a second opportunity to make amends for his attempted usurping of Solomon's kingship, because he did try that. Later, he is executed for another tempest treason. So he didn't give up his plan to overthrow Solomon and become the king. So the altar in the courtyard of the temple complex was a place of asylum for people who sensed that their lives were in jeopardy. But not the temple itself, not inside the temple. This is in the courtyard. And as a prophet, Shemamiah should have known this, so this was a giveaway to Nehemiah that something fishy was going on here. He wants me to go in the temple? No, that's not our prerogative. Now at this juncture, however, Nehemiah only had his suspicions. Nehemiah's reply to Shemamiah is as remarkable as his original apply to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, verse 11, these were his enemies. Should a man like me run away, or should one like me go into the temple to save his life, I will not go. Ooh, my, my. This Nehemiah just won't play the game, will he? He's supposed to be shaking in his boots now. He's not supposed to refuse Shemamiah's counsel. Shemamiah, remember, is a prophet. A bad prophet, but he is a prophet. Now, either Nehemiah is one of the bravest men in Scripture or one of the biggest fools. Doesn't he realize that a hit squad is on the way to rub him out? And he's no match for these gangsters. This is no time to stand on principle. This is a time to run and hide. But running from trouble was about as foreign to Nehemiah's personality as it could get. He had not fled the county, or the country rather, yet though his enemy's life was put him in danger many times, 
When the armies of Sanballat mobilized on the northern border, Nehemiah took immediate steps to protect himself and protect his fellow countrymen. That's true. Those steps involved armament, but not retreat, and not abandonment of the work on the wall. Remember what he did? He put men on the wall with swords and spears, just standing there as guards to let the masons continue to mix mud and cement the wall together. But he didn't run off. He didn't do it then, so he wasn't about to run now. He said, should a man like me run away and go into the temple to save his life, I will not do it. You say, how did Nehemiah know that this was just a threat? I mean, looks like it could be real. Well, apart from the inconsistencies of Shemamiah's story, I believe that in his determination not to disobey God by entering the temple, the Lord gave him the insight he needed to see through this fake murder plot. Numbers 18, verse 7 stipulates that only Aaron and his sons could serve the Lord, and let me read it for you, inside the curtain, that's inside the temple, anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. You remember how strict that was. King Uzziah was a godly king in Israel's history. He lived in the days of Zechariah. But in his pride one day, he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense, the scripture says. Azariah, the priest, along with 80 other priests, followed him and they confronted him, saying, It's not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and you will not be honored by the Lord. In other words, you're, you know, you're over, you might be the king. But you're overstepping your bounds. This realm of worship and leading people in worship is not for you. It's for us, the priesthood. Well, at this confrontation, Uzziah became very angry, very angry. And he raged at the priests in the temple of the Lord. And guess what? He broke out with leprosy. And the priests whisked him out of the temple immediately. And the scripture says, King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house, leprous, excluded from the temple of the Lord. Second Chronicles 26, verse 16 and following. And of his son, Jotham, we read, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 27, verse 2. The son was wise, and he learned from dad's failures what not to do. Last week, we talked a bit about the need for discernment in God's people. And we mentioned that the study of God's word brings discernment into our lives but here's something else Nehemiah obeyed what he knew to be the word of God and that obedience increased his discernment 
By the end of verse 10, I think he had his suspicions that something was wrong. But after his refusal to comply with Shemamiah's counsel, saying, I will not go, that is, into the temple to hide, verse 11, then we read of the insight which came to him, and verse 12 says, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, this is Shemamiah, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. See what happens here? He figured it out. Sanballat and Tobiah, the enemies of Nehemiah, had, had hired this, this uh, prophet to say, oh yeah, you can go into the temple. You'll go on in there and the Lord will bless you. They were just lying through their teeth. Sometimes, brethren, this is how the things of God work. We want to be wise. We want to be discerning. We want to know when someone is pulling the wool over our eyes. We want to be aware of the charlatans, the crooks, the liars, the deceivers. But maybe all we have is our suspicions that something isn't, it's not quite right. So God, as it were, awaits our decision. We don't know if the person who's talking to us is for real or not. But one thing we know, what he has told us to do, while it seems plausible, is, in the final analysis, analysis, a violation of the revealed will of God. A prophet of God, a preacher of God, if he's really a preacher of God or a prophet of God, is not going to tell people, he's not going to instruct people to do something contrary to the book. That's like a red flag. Whoa! It's like saying, I'm lying through my teeth, don't listen to me. And at those times, God not only expects us to stand on our integrity, as Nehemiah did, he refused to be a coward and run and hide, but God expects us to obey what we know and have been written, has been taught from the word of God. Even if that means disobeying the counsel of a new prophet, which has come on the scene. And it is in his obedience to what he knew. I mean, no ordinary citizen had a right to enter God's temple. That's what he knew. So in his obedience to what he knew, Nehemiah was given insight into the real nature of Shemamiah's counsel, and that protected him from sinning and being discredited by his enemies. Verse 13. I can say with full confidence of its trustworthiness because God himself warns us that the mark of the prophets of God is that they tell only what God has given them to speak. Let me read it for you. This is right out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verse 1 and following. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder... And if the sign or wonder takes place, ooh, now listen to this, 
And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known. Let's worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. It is the Lord God you must follow, him you must revere. Keep his commands, obey him, serve him, hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God. He has tried to turn you away from the way of the Lord. Wow. Don't mess with the true prophet and don't listen to the false one. This was Shemamiah, the prophet, telling Nehemiah to do something which the Lord had forbidden to ordinary citizens. Had he gone into the temple, Nehemiah knew he would have committed a sin. He says so, verse 13. So he obeyed what he knew from the word of God, and the Lord protected him from falling into the spell of a false prophet. You want protection from falling into sin? You want insight into what is false and deceiving? Then obey what you know to be the word of God and stick with that come what may. It's in the obedience that God gives the discernment and grants the protection from sin. Sad to say, the Bible portrays Shemamiah as a false prophet hired by Tobiah and Sanballat to prophesy against, that's what the scripture says, he was hired to prophesy against Nehemiah. And from verse 14, it's obvious that a prophetess named Noadiah was in on it too, along with many other prophets. You say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. Shemamiah prophesied, prophesied in favor of Nehemiah, telling him to run and hide because murderers were on their way coming that night to assassinate him. Didn't we read that? Well, we read that, but that was a ploy. Shemamiah came across as a great friend, you know. But his counsel, if obeyed, would have made Nehemiah sin against God and become the subject for discredit by his enemies. So Nehemiah's assessment is correct when he says that Shemamiah prophesied against me. You don't tell somebody to do something that's against the word of God and then look upon them as being true prophets of God. You see how subtle the enemy of our souls is? Satan, like Shemamiah, looks like your friend. He looks like your helper. You will not surely die, he told Eve. God knows that when you eat of it, the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. And Paul says of Adam and Eve, they exchanged the truth of God. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshiped and served created things, the serpent, 
rather than the creator. Romans 1, verse 25. Well, Nehemiah did not fall into this trap because God's word was more precious to him than the word of Shemamiah. We should know, brethren, that there are such things as false preachers. There are such things as prophets for hire. Men who will say anything for money, either having been paid to lie, as in the case of Shemamiah and Noadiah and the rest, or as self-appointed teachers, men who have figured out that it's easier to make a big buck by telling people lies rather than by telling them the truth. Tell people what they want to hear. Remember Balaam the prophet? He was hired by Balak, king of the Moabites, to curse Israel after seeing what tremendous defeat Israel leveled against the Amorites. He was terrified that he and the Moabites were next. To convince Balaam to prophesy for him, Balak said, I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. Numbers 22, verse 17. Money was the motive for the prophecy. I like to say that that's unusual, but it's not. The prophet Samuel refused to take bribes or to exploit the people in any way. And the testimony of the people of the people was this. Let me read it for you. You have not cheated us or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. 1 Samuel 12, verse 4. Boy, I hope when I die, that's my testimony. That was Samuel's. Ah, but with Samuel's sons, his sons... Uh, the story reads a little different. Let me read it for you. His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes. They perverted justice. 1 Samuel 8, verse 3. There's no guarantee that our offspring are going to follow our spiritual our spiritual care. Jeremiah paints this demoralizing picture of Israel's leaders. He writes, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. That must have been a terrible day in Jeremiah's day. He goes on, They dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. They say, Peace, peace. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. I'm reading scripture. And so they will fall among the fallen. Jeremiah 6, verse 13 and 14. This is Old Testament reality. Days of Jeremiah. Wow. Well, I wish I could say it's new... Different when you come to the New Testament, but it's not. When we come to the New Testament, the same is true. Peter, after teaching on the prophets of the Old Testament and how they were men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1, verse 21, he goes on to teach, but there were also, Peter writes, also false prophets among the people, 
just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Why would they do that? He goes on. In greed, there it is, greed for money, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. 2 Peter 2, verse 1 and following. Oh, wow. These teachers will use stories they have made up to commercialize Christianity, to bring in the crowds, who in turn will contribute big bucks to hear more. It's cyclical. It's dangerous. One miracle leads to another. And with the increased sensationalism, the audience grows, the offering plate fills. How many times do we have to read that in our history, in our own country? Those who work and use the Christian faith to their own financial advantage are everywhere in our society, living proof of the fulfillment of Peter's prophecy here. Peter, the true prophet, was predicting things to come which are now a reality. But the point is that we're living in no different a day spiritually than Nehemiah. He had his Shemamiahs, his Noadiahs, and a host of other prophets to deal with. And we have the televangelists and the faith healers and the tongue speakers and the miracle workers to deal with. As ad infinitum, they're everywhere. Our only salvation from these greedy charlatans who have made a mockery of the gospel in the name of Jesus is the sure word of God the written word of God, which locks in words of black and white the unchangeable character of our God. You can't trust the spoken word always, but you can trust the written word. It's right here in black and white, and God has preserved that. Well, there are some powerful lessons to take to heart here. In times of danger or despair or temptation to sin, we must not fall back on the integrity, our own integrity alone to protect us, but on obedience to what we know to be the Word of God. Now we see both in our text. Nehemiah was not a coward. He was not a person to run and hide. That's clear. So when Shemamiah prophesied that he bold himself inside the temple behind closed doors, Nehemiah said boldly, I will not go. It was integrity that made Nehemiah recoil from such a cowardly act. He says, should a man like me run away? What's he saying? He's saying running is for cowards. Hiding is for those that are not sure of their position before God. As an aside, I would say that there are times when God advises us to run. Matthew 24, 16 and following. Flee to the mountains in times of mass persecution. We don't stick around and say, come get me, come kill me and my family. We go and hide. 
But for Nehemiah, the prominent leader in Israel, governor of Judea under Artaxerxes the king, appointed by him to have fled would have been cowardly. So he stood on his integrity. But secondly, Nehemiah needed more than his own integrity to make such a decision. I mean, we've all heard of captains going down with their ships, right? Refusing to enter the last lifeboat, sail off in safety. And here, while such action demonstrates integrity, it also portrays foolish pride, doesn't it? What protected Nehemiah from acting on pride? How do we know that the only reason he did not take Shemamiah's counsel was because he didn't want to look like a coward. Well, verse 12. He said that Shemamiah had prophesied against him. And verse 13. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. Doing what? while entering the temple as an ordinary man who was not a priest. How did Nehemiah know that for him to enter the temple was a sin? Well, he was aware of the teaching of the word of God, and it was his obedience to what he knew that protected him from temptation and sin. Not just his integrity but his knowledge of the word of God. Obeying God, brethren, never gets you into sinful trouble. God always has our good in mind with his rules and regulations. When I was taking my driving test for my CDL, my uh, commercial driver's license, to enable me to drive bus in Lapeer, the testing agent told me, Mr. Luke, on this test today, I will never ask you to do anything or tell you to do anything which breaks the law. Wow. You know what that did for me? It set my mind at ease about the tester. It told me that she wanted me to pass the test. She would not be doing something tricky or deceptive to cause me to fail. Do you know that God's requirements are like that? He wants us to live a blessed life. His commands are not designed to cause us to fail. Nehemiah obeyed what he knew to be the word of God. He could compare what he knew with the counsel of Shemamiah and know in an instant, in an instant, that Shemamiah was up to no good. Because this so-called prophet was telling him to do things opposite of what the Word of God instructed him to do. That's a tremendous lesson. Your antenna needs to go up. If you're listening to a preacher or reading a book, Christian book or whatever, and it and you're reading it and say, this doesn't sound right. 
this doesn't sound biblical. This doesn't sound like something God would say in his word or that I have read in his word. That's just being wise. Second lesson here is the written word of God always takes precedence over the spoken word. Listen to me what I'm saying. The written word of God always takes precedence over the spoken word. Shemamiah and Noadiah were prophets, and as such they had their credentials, they had the credentials to speak in the name of God. The fact that they could be bought to speak things other than the word of God was not immediately known to Nehemiah. He didn't know what was going on behind the background. But when they spoke, Nehemiah compared what they said with the written regulations of the Bible, and their counsel came up tilt. Uh-uh. Somehow, this doesn't match. There's a mismatch. So too in our day, preachers have the credentials to speak for God. But some are claiming even have to be recipients of new revelations from God. Is the Bible still being written? Are we to be open to further revelations from God? Well, that's another issue to consider. But even if we were to lay that aside for the moment, there's something more basic. Do the words of the preacher, do his teaching agree with the written word of God or not? There's your barometer. And the reason that this is valid of question is because God does not contradict himself. And he doesn't change. He doesn't have to change. I mean, if he's perfect, perfection ceases to be perfection if it undergoes change. Think about that. If something's perfect... Don't mess with it. As soon as you mess with it, you have destroyed its perfection. So whenever there is discrepancy between what the Bible says and what a preacher says, you are to believe and follow the Bible. And the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom. The written word of God always takes precedence over the spoken word. Because we know that the written word was God breathed, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture, all in graphe, is the Greek word there. All of the writings are inspired. We know no such thing with the spoken word of the preacher. I know there are some preachers that talk as though their words were inspired, but they're not. We only have his word and what he is saying. I'm speaking for God. 
Well, it may be. The best preaching does agree with the written word of God and, in fact, takes its message from the word of God. But in the case of men like Shemamiah, what he said to Nehemiah, he spoke for money. It's clear, we're told. His tongue was governed by his pocketbook. No preacher of God is worth obeying unless his message agrees with God's message in the Bible. Brethren, this is how God protects his people from error and sin. One final note. Take note that Christ himself, who is the living word of God, his teaching is the final authority for our life. His written teachings are found in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in the epistles of the New Testament. And we read in the scripture that even the Old Testament must bow to this one who preceded Moses, the prophets, the priests, the kings. A greater than Moses is here. So we listen to the words of Christ. And the New Testament interprets the Old Testament, not the other way around. We're so blessed to have the New Covenant, the New Testament, to have the teachings of Christ, the great teacher himself explaining to us the things of God. Do you know God today? You do if you know Jesus as Savior. You don't if you don't know Jesus as Savior. You want to learn the Bible? You want to learn about God? Then study the teachings of Christ. Seek the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to instruct you. And he'll never, here again, he will never instruct you contrary to the written word of God. This is your touchstone. You're wondering if something is true that's being said or or you're reading something in a book and you wonder if it's true, you come back to this book, to the teachings of Christ, and make a comparison. This is what Jesus said, but this is what this author says. Hmm, there's a discrepancy. Who's wrong? The author, not Christ. Lord Jesus, teach us to be discerning. You've given us means to be discerning, but we have to apply ourselves to these. We can't just be gullible and believe every preacher that comes down the pike. And I don't want my people even here to believe me apart from the fact that what I say agrees with the word of God. And if it doesn't agree with the written word of God, they shouldn't believe me. But the other is also true. If it is the word of God, if it does agree, then it is incumbent upon each who hears, to hear and obey. Lord, show us the difference, we ask, for the glory of Christ and the salvation of our souls. Amen. From Trinity, the Red Hymnal, let's sing number 80, 80. Let's stand as we sing. Number 80 in the red hymn.
people said. Amen. Amen. If you look at the bottom of the page, the author of that hymn is Francis Scott Key, who wrote our national hymn. Wow. We've come a long way, the wrong way, haven't we, in terms of where our country is headed. Thank you for godly men like this. Fanny Crosby's another great hymn writer, and William Cowper, others. Wow. But it's in, interesting, and I think heartening to see that there were some politically involved people that wrote wonderful hymns about our God and our salvation. Okay, I ask this question usually every Sunday. Who's going to be here tonight? One, two, three, five people. Guess we will not meet tonight. <laughs> I know it's summer and people are away, and I can tell you there's a number of families still not here, so. <laughs> Money? Yes. <laughs> like Shemamiah, <laughs> the false prophet. You know, there are churches that do that. They hide $50 bills under the pews, and they, and they have people. They announce it. you got to come in and find the $50 bill. Well, that will bring them in, that's for sure. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have uh, given us a love for the truth of your word. Uh, sometimes it's biting. It, it does bite us. It hurts us. It, it brings conviction. That's okay. Because we're so used to pablum, we're used to being fed baby food that um, when we get something that is sting has a sting to it, uh, we recoil. But it might be necessarily the very thing that brings us to Christ. We're not wonderful people. We need a Savior, and that Savior is found in Jesus alone. And uh, He came to pay for the sins of his people and Lord we're just so thankful for that and for any here that is outside of Jesus and they don't know him as Savior grant them faith today grant them repentance today that today might be beginning of a new life for them a new spiritual life whereby you will draw them into your kingdom give them joy and love in serving you in this life thank you for each one here be with those that couldn't be here today in Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed. Thank you. <laughs> You're wrapped in your blanket. <laughs>